Hello and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show about climate and energy issues by young people for all people. I am Steve Chan, and joined this week, as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Kelly Jang. Kelly, how you doing? I'm doing well. Um, so we're recording this on a Thursday, and this weekend, um, my boyfriend and I are going to play music at a friend's wedding, so that'll be exciting. We learned five songs in two days. It'll be great. <laughs> I hadn't touched my cello in probably a year uh, before last week, and now we're going to play for like 100 people, so this is going to be really fun. So that's the most exciting thing going on. Damn, 100 people. Yeah. I didn't know it was that many. I think it might be more like 70, but it's still, I mean, and it's also we're kind of just being background music, you know, while people are filing in, but it's still like some people might be actually listening, so. So outside of the renewable generation, uh, you might catch Kelly signing her new record deal in the next couple weeks, so look out for that. Uh, Not in a few weeks, but, uh, you know, I have this mic for the podcast, so uh, we're adding it to our stash of mics for recording music. Nice. Living the dream. Yeah. Very nice. That's right. We're going we're gonna to write some songs about uh, climate anxiety, so stay tuned for that new theme song for the Renewable Generation on cello. Ooh, I can't wait for that. Yeah. What's new in your life, Steve? Yeah, this weekend I, I'm not doing anything as, as significant as playing at a wedding, but I will be bringing a little bit of DC culture back to San Francisco. I'm going to be going to brunch with some friends. And uh, the DC brunch culture is pretty pretty strong. I don't know if, if any of the listeners know about this, but DC brunch culture is very powerful. It's it's quite a, a force to be reckoned with. So I'm excited to bring some of that energy to, to San Francisco. Definitely, um, the goal is to <laughs> the goal of brunch is to make the restaurant lose money on you. Um, <laughs> that is always a goal. I don't know if it's ever really achieved, but you know, it's it, the fun isn't trying. That's that's. That's my mentality. So what? How do you make the restaurant lose money? Like, do you do you get like the bottomless mimosas and just like? Oh yeah, bottomless, all you can eat. You set a certain, you have a fixed price, and then you try to beat that price. <laughs> this is a very interesting concept. I feel like if you go after some like big hike or long run, you could do well. But then also like, I I don't know if they have those kinds of uh, establishments here where you could do that or you just fast (laughs) fast for the night before and just show up really hungry and and you know what you just you have a group mentality team effort behind it you make it happen so speaking of group mentality team effort you know one of the biggest group efforts out there is tackling climate change oh good transition (laughs) (laughs) which is you know, there's got some similarities there. And also, just like in brunch, sometimes you wish you could you could uh, rewind the clock a little bit and undo some of the damage that you've done at brunch. Um, similarly, in climate change, there's, there's this idea of carbon accounting, uh, corporate carbon accounting, and carbon offsets. So, Kelly, what, what, is, what are those ideas? So, I guess to continue beating this metaphor about the group project, you know that for example, at brunch, if it's really a team effort, it might be we might think that someone who just did a really big workout or who's just a larger person might have a larger responsibility to contribute to this group effort because they have a larger stomach or because they have historically emitted so many emissions, they have um, <laughs> more responsibility to reduce these emissions. Um, and so in the corporate world, accounting for carbon emissions is kind of becoming like a big new trendy thing. Actually, just reporting on the emissions has been a thing for many years. And now 
corporations are now being increasingly judged by how seriously they are actually taking these efforts to cut their emissions. Um, so in the first half of the show, we're going to just be talking about the basics of corporate carbon accounting, um, scope one, two, and three emissions, um, as well as what it means for companies to go 100% renewable, since that's the, uh, the new hot topic. Not that new. Um, and then in the second half of the show, we're going to talk... Sponsored by Hot Topic. Oh, <laughs> is Hot Topic uh, trying to uh, become a net zero company? They should. They're too hot. They're emitting too many emissions. They're making everything hotter. Yeah. Um, and then in the second half of the episode, we're going to be talking about offsets. So that's a whole world of um, that we're not going to dive into right now, but that's coming up next. So, um, Steve, do you want to give us a quick overview of the three scopes of emissions? I'd love to, Kelly. Thanks for, thanks for that intro. And so, first of all, with carbon accounting, um, you really got to think about scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. And, and this is a, a topic that a lot of you might be familiar with already. We, we actually covered this on a previous episode as well, but we want to uh, do another, another 101 on this. Um, so scope one emissions is, um, let's say you're a company. Okay, so scope one emissions are emissions from owned or controlled sources. So for example, if you're a company, you might have some cars that you own as a company that are driven for work purposes. Um, or you might have a refrigerator that is leaking uh, refrigerant, um, which is a, a very um, potent greenhouse gas. Or other electronics that you, that you, uh, that you own um, potentially might, might emit. Um, let's say um, NF3 is, is used a lot in the manufacturing of thin film solar about a decade ago. Um, so those are the things that you actually own yourself as a company and um, are responsible for those emissions. Yeah, and um, to go off that thing about um, NF3, it's actually really interesting um, because, you know, you would think that solar is something that, you know, is like environmentally friendly. But um, a while ago, actually, these um, scientists found that in the manufacturing of these solar panels, they were actually creating huge emissions of a very... It's like there's not the concentration is not that high, but every molecule of it has like several times the impact as a molecule of CO2. And so just by like cleaning up a few factories, you can have a massive impact on climate change. And that's <clears throat> within scope one because it's things that are owned by the companies. And um, uh, another concept that we might introduce here is the concept of like CO2 equivalence. So we count all emissions as it's called like CO2e or CO2 equivalent. So like one molecule of CO2 is, you know, or one ton of CO2 is one ton of CO2. Then we have other greenhouse gases like methane, which is um, like 25 times as potent as CO2 on a 100-year timescale or 80 times over 25-year timescale. Um, hydrofluorocarbons, which are often used in refrigerants that actually are like several thousand times the impact of CO2. So actually, interestingly, we're getting a little bit off topic here, but um, there's um, some heat pump companies that actually use CO2 as a refrigerant. You might think, oh, CO2, that's like, you know, bad for the environment, but it's so much less bad than these other refrigerants that are out there. So anyway, little aside, fun facts for your next trivia night. It's all about that relative badness. huh? We're just trying to shave little amounts of CO2 off wherever we can. Be less bad. That's our motto. Be less bad. Be less bad. That's something I'm working on every single day. Um, some days better than others. <laughs> Moving on to scope two emissions. So scope two emissions are indirect emissions from the generation of purchased electricity, steam, heating, and cooling that are uh, consumed by the reporting company. So for the, most, for the most part, this boils down to if you are a company and you lease a certain building, you use electricity, you use energy, 
you know, you have AC going, you, you plug it in, you, you got a microwave, you got, you got an oven in that building. Those are all the, the energy and electricity that you consume as part of that building. And scope three emissions, um, this is really like the largest category here. Scope three emissions, it's also the hardest one to keep track of. This is scope three is all indirect emissions that occur in a company's value chain. So this is including all the purchased goods and services, business travel, employee commuting, waste disposal, use of sold products, transportation and distribution up and downstream, um, investments, and leased assets and franchises. So it's pretty much like every single part that your company touches to, to be a company, to, to interact in the world, um, and the emissions that are released there. Um, and it's also, what, what can be tricky about this is if you are, let's say, a, let's say you're Starbucks, and you, um, you know you're selling coffee to your customers, you have to, if you want to really reduce your scope three emissions, you have to talk to every single person in your supply chain, to talk to like the growers, the distributors, the, the middlemen, and make sure that they are doing their part to, re- to reduce their emissions. And that's how you can reduce your scope three emissions, um, which also introduces a, a, a tricky part of double counting. So if, you're, if I'm a company that's reducing my scope three emissions, and I'm counting that as you know, you know, s- several, let's say, 100 tons of CO2 abated, I got to make sure that I'm not counting that. The economy is not counting that. And then also that distributor is also counting that. So this idea of like double counting there. Well, it would technically be part of that, like your subcontractor's scope one emission. So it does count that. And I think with corporate accounting scope three, it's kind of like the more you can include in there, actually the better, because then you're like taking responsibility for things down the value chain. When we're concerned about double counting is like, if you get your distributor to like reduce emissions and then you also claim that as some kind of offset, then that gets a little sketchy. Um, and one interesting thing I would mention about scope three emissions is that, you know, there's some uh, oil companies out there who claim to be, they're like, oh, we're the greenest oil company because our scope one and scope two emissions are so low. Because let's say you're, I don't know, a Norwegian oil company and you use Norwegian hydro to pump your gas. You're not counting the fact that like over 90% of your emissions come from the use of your sold product. And that's, you know, that's important to count. Um, so there's other things that, um, come in scope three as well, like, uh, dispo- waste disposal. And I think even one example that I saw was like some shampoo company counted the energy that their customers used for like heating the water that they used to take the shower. I was like, okay, that's a bit of a stretch, but like good on you for <laughs> taking responsibility <laughs> for that, I guess. But anyway, so scope low hanging fruit. Yeah. Well, scope three is like everything it's actually everything. And it's like, do you want to go into like your suppliers and then your suppliers, suppliers, like how, how deep do you want to go? So that's definitely like, it's pretty easy to count your scope one and scope two emissions. Scope three gets significantly more difficult. And that's kind of like the gold standard of what a lot of companies are trying to do now. Right. And I would also say that scope two emissions, I think for the vast majority of companies out there, scope two is the easiest one to get rid of. Scope two is just your electricity and your energy, right? So just go, go renewable. Just go renewable, um, and you solve a lot of the problems. The only companies I think in in the economy that have a really tough time with that are like heavy industry, like people who are like really working with steel and like um, you know melting down giant metal or breaking breaking rocks. Um, for the most part, that still requires fossil fuels just because of the amount of um, energy density in those fuels. Um, but there are ways that we can start to address those, such as green hydrogen. Um, 
and you know, uh, uh, natural gas with carbon capture and sequestration attached. Um, but those are topics for another episode. Um, we did talk on the idea of 100% renewable energy in there. So why don't we uh, hop to that topic? Uh, yeah, cool. Um, so on the topic of 100% renewable energy, so you might have heard a lot of companies saying that they're going 100% renewable and might be a little bit confused about what necessarily that means. So we're going to kind of quickly go through like three different ways that companies can go quote unquote 100% renewable from I guess like least amount of credibility to highest amount of credibility. So Steve, do you want to talk about RECs? What is a REC? What is a REC? Um, well, I do go to my REC league sometimes and play some basketball. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> no, no, not in no, this case. No, we're talking about renewable energy credits. Um, and we have S Rex, we have W Rex, um, so solar Rex or wind Rex. Are there hydro Rex as well? H Rex? I've actually never heard about that. But. I would imagine that it would be. Yeah. But anyways, these are renewable energy credits, and these things, these are certificates that say, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Kelly, is it every, for every one kilowatt hour or for every 1,000 kilowatt hours when it's created? Um, I'm not 100% sure, but it's like, so when you generate one kilowatt hour or one megawatt hour of electricity. Some units. Yeah, some, some units unit of, yeah. of electricity. You generate the actual, you know, electrons. Then you also generate this piece of paper, which it's basically like, this thing was green. Right. And, and this, is the, this is where this idea of double counting can get pretty tricky as well. So if I'm creating one unit of solar energy, I get one unit of a rec. So if I create 1,000 units of solar energy, I get 1,000 recs. And a lot of times these recs are actually monetized. There's actually a market for these things. And this is to do with compliance. So previous episodes, we've talked about renewable portfolio standards. Um, you know, let's say California needs to get to 100% renewable by 2045. Um, the way they do it is through RECs. They have a REC market, and they put some, there's a monetary value there assigned. Um, and the tricky part can be, if I'm a solar company, and I develop a solar project, who gets the REC, um, the, the actual RECs? Who gets to claim the RECs? And that usually gets sold off. That those rights get sold off to someone. So a lot of times, solar developers themselves they cannot claim to be environmentally friendly themselves because they sell the S Rex off to another off to another client, and that whoever owns the Rex can claim to be environmentally friendly. So those the idea of Rex. And if you're a company that uses, let's say, a thousand you know kilowatt hours in a certain amount of time, and it's all fossil fuels, you can just say, oh, I'm going to buy a thousand kilowatt hours worth of Rex, and therefore I'm 100% renewable. And um, it's also worth noting that you don't even need to necessarily buy the recs like within the same place that you're located. Um, so you could buy recs like somewhere totally different. Like I don't know if you buy recs from some project, some like grid connected wind project in China. Technically, that could count. But obviously, like if you're really thinking about it, like is that actually reducing your own company's impact on the grid? Like no. So that's. Well, I personally would consider the least credible option. I think a lot of people in the space are very skeptical about RECs. Um, the idea be behind why it could work is that basically if it's like an additional revenue stream for the um, developer, then potentially um, it could like increase the business case for them to build more renewable projects, which you know I can see the logic there, but like at this point, the cost of these like low-quality RECs is actually so low that it doesn't actually make that big of a difference in the finances of any renewable energy project. Um, I don't think that's, that's true, though. It depends what state and what market you're in. 
certain states are close to their renewable portfolio goals already, so the SREX are very low value. But a lot of states, like for example, Maryland is an example. When I was working there, when we passed the, the Clean Energy Jobs Act, um, the value of SREX more than doubled. Um, and all of a sudden it opened up the, the solar market there. So I think it depends. It's, it might be because you're talking about maybe you have more experience in Washington or California where there's like a, a heavy momentum already built in. But in states that are starting to starting to open up the solar markets, those recs are like a significant source of revenue. Yeah, and but then the, then in that case, the source of the like higher cost for recs is because of compliance rather than because of like corporations, um, you know, like doing these voluntary commitments. So I think like to the to your point that like actually if you're passing legislation to try to get 100% renewable then that will have that will have a meaningful effect on moving the needle i would agree with that but then if you're just a company trying to move the needle by going 100% renewable by buying rex you especially because companies typically will seek out the cheapest way to do it so it like usually if you're trying to do it in the cheapest way you're also going to do it in a lower quality way but I'd also say as a counterpoint to that idea is that climate change is a global problem or, or at least it's a problem without boundaries. Um, so if you're a company that you know, lives in Los Angeles but you buy wrecks for a project in you know, Shanghai, um, it's still, you're still putting a dent into the climate change problem, though you're not impacting, you're not benefiting like the local air quality and things like that. Yeah, but there is actually a substantial amount of debate about whether, like, if you're buying wrecks that are, like, several cents per megawatt hour, like, a couple dollars, does that actually impact the finances of the project enough that it has a meaningful effect on project development? And I think many people think it doesn't. So Cents for a kilowatt hour is, is good. I'll take cents in a kilowatt I hour. I said cents per megawatt hour. Oh, per megawatt. So utility scale at this point? Yeah. Anyways, we're we're getting off topic. Let's let's move on to the next to the next. So this is we say Rex. Evan, feel free to cut some of this. This is kind of good though. I like it because we kind of <laughs> have a disagreement there a little bit. So Rex supposedly, according to Kelly, is like the least least good. It's the cheapest one. Um, PPAs. What what do you what do you mean by PPAs? Cool. So PPA is another acronym. It stands for Power Purchase Agreement. And basically, the idea here is that some company, let's say, you, this is typically very common for much larger companies. Um, like, you know, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, who have like really large energy producing facilities. So they'll sign a power purchase agreement with an energy provider and be like, okay, you're building the solar farm. We will buy, you know, whatever amount of energy that you produce at such and such cost. And so you are like, you're getting it. You have like a specific contractual agreement with like one plant. And as a result, that's kind of what you're getting your electrons from theoretically. But then because the way that RECs currently are calculated, it's just like on an annual basis. It's not on an hour by hour basis. So let's say you have a data center that runs 24-7 and you're sourcing your, your, you have a PPA with the solar farm. The solar farm's actual output is not really in line with your um, data center, even though they are technically like on the same grid, but the uh, time isn't necessarily aligned. However, because you are directly contracting with this one solar plant or a provider and then you are like literally the reason they're building this is because you have your facility that will be using their energy so in terms of like additionality this is seen uh or at least it's generally agreed upon that this is a better option i i do want to make the point that because ener energy and the environmental credit which is the the rec those things are separate things like one can make an argument philosophically that buying RECs and having a PPA are the same thing. Because if you are a company 
that's trying to claim you have, you have a PPA for a solar project on your on your roof, but you're selling but like the developer doesn't sell the recs to you. They sell the recs to someone else. Technically, you're not producing clean energy. Whoever has the recs is like financing it. But at least my understanding is that if you are signing the PPA, you would also be buying the recs. Not always. It's right? Not always. But you know what? But also in terms of uh, like um, marketing or like PR stuff, like people just say, oh, we have solar. Like we, we're doing clean energy. Like th- that's like the, the, the marketing thing you say. But technically because of the idea of recs being something separate from energy, it's like technically not. But <laughs> Oh, okay. You, you're the uh, former solar developer, so I'll defer to your expertise on this. But what else? What, so you brought up the idea of of um, clean energy production or clean energy generation not necessarily being tied to your consumption. But there are some companies that are doing this. They're, they're tying it exactly, right? What does that look like? Well, it's their aspiration. So Google was the first company to announce this. They wanted to be 100% uh, 24-7 powered by renewable energy in every grid that they serve. So the idea is like you can buy recs and like other, you know, grids, but what they want to do is like, okay, like they, cause they have data centers all over the world. So on every single grid that they operate on, they want their data center load to be matched with the load that they're produced with the generation that they're, that they've contracted. So it's pretty interesting. Um, I read their white paper about it when it first came out, like a while ago, maybe like a year or so. Um, and their t- view is that they're going to have to do some amount of overbuying of renewables. So like you could, you know, like if in the shoulder hours, like let's say four to 5 PM, your solar would be at like 50% of your load. You could actually just buy twice as much solar because utility scale solar is getting so cheap. And then you would also have some type like long duration storage, short duration storage, as well as getting a diverse mix of resources. So in addition to solar, you'd have like wind, geothermal, hydro, um, and all sorts of storage. And yeah, that, that, um, that key point at the very beginning of it is that, that 24-7, so that at literally every single second of operations, they are always being powered by... Well, every hour. I think, really? It's not at the second level? It, it, is, it is every hour. That's called 24-7. It's not 24-67. But isn't that their goal? Not 24-3600-7. Isn't their goal to be? No, they, they said every... No, every it's every hour. hour. Okay, okay. It's not every second. Because every okay, if you're if you're really talking about every second, then you're starting to get into like frequency regulation. Right. Which then why stop at second? We're millisecond. not going to discuss <laughs> microsecond. But what was in, really interesting is um, the idea of baseload of power was was a huge um, technical hurdle for them. And the way that they're solving Google and Microsoft are solving this is through um, what's called flexible geothermal, um, which is like really interesting. There's a company out there called I believe it's Form Energy uh, or Fervo Energy, Fervo Energy, and they're they're a geothermal company, and they're the ones that are like being signed up as like the the company that's going to make this happen, um, because you can't really provide baseload with solar, you can't provide baseload with wind because you can't control when they're on, but you can you can guarantee that the Earth is always producing energy like b- below like the earth, the crust, and that's like what their their whole uh, like pitch has been about. So, pretty interesting stuff there. Oh, is that the one where they drill like super deep where they start? getting into like the like almost to the mantle so it's not it's also not as like geo geographically dependent or like geologically dependent yes i think it's not even that close to the mantle i think it's just like a couple i don't know the exacts here but it's like if you go down just i know that if you go down beneath the surface of the earth just like like 10 feet you start to like really quickly hit like some warmth so it's pretty like interesting 
um, on that. Uh, it's got to be more than 10 feet because otherwise everyone would be doing that everywhere. Like it, it's got to be actually pretty complicated to drill down. Like I think at that point, like when you're at like those high temperatures, you have to have like different materials or just like the pressure is so high that you have to, that there's various issues that come up. So it's, it's not 10 feet. I will say that much. No. Yeah. It's not 10 feet. It's like, it's the fact that when you start to drill down 10 feet, you start to see some, some warmth already. So it's like just to wrap your head around the idea that it's not that far. Like earth power is not very far away from, yeah, but there's definitely some drilling. A lot of the people who work into that space are like oil people who are trying to go clean energy. So they just transfer their skills over. So um, after a quick break, we'll um, come back and talk about carbon offsets. So this episode is brought to you by Bright Power, the premier provider of energy and water management services for real estate owners, investors, and operators. We enhance building performance, simplify building operations, and contribute to a healthier environment inside and out. To learn more, please visit brightpower.com. Also, we do some projects where we dig underground to get the heat of the earth. Not really, but we do um, have uh, installations of ground source heat pumps, um, particularly in New York, and we've been working with um, architects um, and uh, construction people on like new build uh, buildings that actually have ground source heat pumps, which is pretty interesting technology. So that sounds interesting to you. Um, we're also hiring. Um, and our job openings are on our website at brightpower.com slash we're hiring, or you can just go to brightpower.com and click on the careers tab. So thanks to our sponsor. And now we're back. Um, and we're talking about offsets, AKA climate indulgences. Steve, want to, want to give us a brief introduction to that? Sure. Amazon, JetBlue, Delta Airlines, Elton John? Dave Matthews Band, Justin Trudeau, Austin, Texas, Norway, Nestle, the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, and NASCAR. All of these, all of these entities have something in common. This hodgepodge of corporations, celebrities, politicians, cities, countries, and events all have one thing in common. They are buying carbon offsets. So we've talked in the first half about carbon accounting, and first of all, you want to know how much you as an individual or as a family or as a community, city, corporation are emitting into the atmosphere. But then what do you actually do about it? So we've talked a little bit about going 100% renewable and starting to just literally abate your emissions to begin with. But we also have this, this idea of net zero. So one thing you can do it, to be net zero, you essentially have to you know, have an equal amount of positive and negative emissions, right? So you, um, one thing you can do is literally abate your emissions, or another thing you can do is buy carbon offsets um, and find some way to draw down carbon in another way. Um, so it doesn't. So net zero doesn't literally mean zero emissions, at least from the perspective of a company or organization. It means you pay someone else to emit less or draw down carbon dioxide. Again, be careful of double counting. Yeah, and that's why it's called net zero. It's not like literally zero. Like for instance, if you I mean, if you personally, you know, drive a car and emit one ton of carbon dioxide and then you plant a tree that sucks down one ton of carbon dioxide per year, then you could claim that you're net zero, but your car is still causing emissions. Um, 
the tricky thing with offsets is that you could be paying someone else to reduce their emissions and count that towards yourself. So let's say you drive your car, you pay your friend not to drive their car, and then you can claim that you're net zero. So this is that's basically the why people kind of refer to it as indulgences because you you're kind of like paying for some kind of counterfactual, right? It's like, "Oh, well, we'll pay these other people over there to reduce their emissions and, you know, not do anything over here." And there's some amount of offset projects which are like there's a lot of concern about whether offset projects are actually like verifiable and high quality, and there's plenty of them out there which certainly are not. Um and so um, there's several different criteria that we use to judge them. Right. And before we get into that, it's like I do want to address the idea of like the indulgences because this is a debate that Kelly and I have offline all the time. So like indulgences has this connotation, right? A negative connotation that it's just like the Catholics that used to pay, used to accept money and you would absolve you of your sins, which is like in a lot of senses, it's a pretty accurate way of thinking about it. But I also want to stress the point that it's necessary. Like carbon offsets... Like, it's just, if you do the math, like, we can't get to net zero without carbon offsets. So it's like, I, I think that it's important to say, to have some nuance here and say, like, yes, it's um, very dubious at times. I think there are a lot of problems inherent to the idea of carbon offsets, which we're about to go into, but it's also necessary. So, like, we kind of need to, like, bear it a little bit and, like, figure out how to solve all the problems with it. And, in fact, like, the, the fact that it's necessary is, is reflected on the... The idea that the ecosystem marketplace um, on voluntary carbon markets, they actually found um, in 2021 that the, that the market value is on track to be over $1 billion for the first time in history. Well, just because something is a $1 billion market doesn't mean it's necessary. There's plenty of things that have a $1 million market size that aren't necessary. But it's driven by, uh, by, net, by corporate net zero ambitions and growing interest in carbon markets to meet Paris goals. So like this idea of carbon markets is this, this thing that it's, it's coming out of the woodwork yeah. on its own. Yeah, I'm, I'm all in favor of carbon markets, but what I'm saying is like there's a difference between, let's say you are a company that burns fossil fuels and you decide to switch your equipment to burn green hydrogen. There's that. And then there's, you know, paying uh, someone to not cut down trees on their property that they weren't going to cut down anyway. Right. Which is problematic. Or paying them not to cut down the trees. And then because of the historic wildfires, they burned out. So wait, we're going to go into, we're going to get into all of this. This is all super valid. We're going to get into all of this. So the idea of how do we, how do we ensure that carbon offsets are legitimate? Right? How do we avoid the moral pitfalls that, uh, and, and ethical and climate pitfalls of using carbon offsets? So there's, there's four concepts that we need to make sure um, are, are like maintained. There's the idea of additionality, permanence, leakage, and double counting. So, Kelly, you kind of talked about... You don't want leakage and double counting, right. by the way. So additionality is what you were talking about. Do you want to dive into that again, Kelly? Yeah. So additionality, it's basically like is what you're doing actually having an impact? Like, if not for you giving money to this offset project, would it not happen? So it's like, if you're just kind of giving some extra money, like, this actually is kind of a thing that happens in, like, I hate to say this, but like it happens in conservation projects where it's like, oh, to pres- we're preserving these trees and then there's also some attribute of like carbon uh, that's in there. So people are going to be able to monetize that. It's like, if you didn't pay them, you know, like, $10 per ton of carbon, they probably would have done the conservation project anyway. And so you're not really having that big of an impact. Um, 
I think um, I've talked to some people who work on this, um, specifically our friend Holly Beal from Microsoft, and she said um, Microsoft has bought some carbon credits from King County Forest, but it's like specifically from parcels that are there to like enhance habitat continuity, and the price that they're paying is like higher because it. Um, so I think that in that case, it's kind of like you are a party in like a larger agreement and you're like doing this financial contribution, but like it doesn't like it's not happening because you did it, which is kind of the idea of like why you would be buying this, right? It's like if you didn't pay this person to plant this tree, then they wouldn't plant it. Then that's actually something where you're like, yes, my dollars made some additional difference. Right. And and then moving on to the next topic of permanence. So like this, when you actually buy a carbon offset, you need to make sure that, let's say, you paid money to preserve an acre of trees that were otherwise going to be cleared and, and cut down, right? But let's say you spend this money, and the next five years, they burn down, because we all know that wildfires are happening with increasing frequency nowadays. So that's, that's a problem, right? If you've spent, let's say, 100 bucks and it burns down after five years, it's not really that permanent, and you know you're emitting you're actually emitting extra carbon emissions once it burns. So it's a huge problem. Um, and actually, um, geological storage is considered to be like the best practice in terms of permanence. This is things such as direct air capture or carbon capture from point sources, where they we literally suck down carbon and they like inject it into like geological, very deep in the ground geological formations. Um, and they actually stay there for over a hundred years. But the, what the kind of problematic part about that is that a lot of times they're injected into those, into those underground places to do fracking. A lot of times this is how it gets done. Like they frack and then they like keep some of that down there and they say, oh, look, we did carbon capture and sequestration, but they, <laughs> they neglect to mention that you did that to get more natural gas. Yeah. Yeah, actually, so um, car- captured carbon right now, the biggest market for it is actually enhanced oil recovery, which is like, you know, like when you first drill into the ground, the pressure is really high. So the gas like shoots out over time as more gas comes out, the pressure goes down. You pump carbon dioxide down there, pressure goes up again, more gas comes out. Some of the gas gets trapped in there. It actually reduces. It's interesting. I've seen some like life cycle assessments of that, and they claim that the life cycle emissions from uh, fracked gas with enhanced oil recovery is like one third less than so it's like two thirds of the emissions of like normal gas, which is actually pretty interesting to me. I mean, it's still like not great, but it's like substantial. So that's it's pretty a step interesting. in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, like, I also don't trust those reports a little bit because like who who puts together those reports? Like the I oil think companies. Th- so. No, this was like an academic report. I remember. Oh, I know. A lot of them are bought out. I, that's I'm pretty true, sure that's I have true. a hunch. I mean, either way, it's it's like an interesting concept. And um, I would also say that as far as carbon capture goes, like car- direct air carbon capture, it's like wh- while we still have point sources, why are we trying to do direct air car- carbon capture? Like the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere is point. Oh four percent. Okay. Whereas let's coming- do this in a different episode. I have a lot anyway, to say about this. Anyway, okay. Have, let's do a whole episode. We will. We've been promising this for a while, but we're gonna do a carbon capture and storage episode, and it'll be amazing. I know. We're we're clearly heated about this topic. Okay. Okay. Next. What's what's the next one? Leakage. What, what do you got, Kelly? Leakage. Okay. So, the idea with leakage. This is particularly the case with things like preserving forests. So it's like, oh, we will preserve this forest over here, but the demand for wood products is still there. So will a forest somewhere else be cut down? Like if you preserve the Amazon, is this forest in another country that is not as charismatic or protected going to be cut down? And, you know, um, so 
I would say that in some cases it is actually like there's, especially if it's like old growth trees that are like, you know, it's like a really like longstanding habitat. I think those types of habitats should be protected, but that's more for like the habitat value rather than like the carbon value. Um, but in terms of like avoiding deforestation, I think the main driver of that is really just demand. Like we saw how in the pandemic lumber prices went up so much. Lumber. Just like, <laughs> so, it, oh yeah. So the, like preserving one little patch of forest somewhere is not necessarily going to uh, lead to a significant change as far as the global supply chain is concerned. Right. And the last idea item here is the thing that I've been saying throughout this whole episode is double counting. I think it's, 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 it's um, <laughs> particularly annoying to me just from an accounting perspective. I'm kind of like, it just like irks me to double count anything. It's literally just like a weird tick that I have. But double counting is mostly a problem in the international sphere. So for example, um, if Brazil wants, a lot of times Brazil wants to claim the carbon benefits of their Amazon rainforest preservation, but a lot of times those conservation efforts are being financed by other countries buying carbon offsets. So it's kind of like who gets to claim that environmental benefit? Um, and that's a lot of the negotiations going on at the UN and like um, this whole like cl- global climate effort is like who gets to claim the reduction um, and who gets who gets the praise for that. Similar to an SREC, who gets to claim the green benefit? The person who bought it, the person who produced it. It's definitely uh, something an issue that needs to be resolved. Yeah, definitely. And it's particularly tricky, like on the international level, where like different countries are counting other people's emissions reductions as their own. Ooh. Spicy. So Kelly, can so it sounds like we just got a lot of carbon offset options out there. Can we just like buy like a trillion dollars worth of carbon offsets and you know, isn't that problem solved? No, because you can't pay other people not to emit and not reduce your own emissions. Eventually like eventually someone's gonna have to actually decrease the amount of emissions that they're making. So the problem with some offsets is like you are if you can claim a reduction relative to a baseline, you're good. So in some cases, there are companies who like they would artificially inflate what their expectations for their emissions are, and then they'll, they know that they'll come in under that, and then the part in between, they're like, oh, see, we're like doing so good. Um, this is particularly the case in countries like China, and even in California with the cap and trade market when they first like gave out a bunch of permits to everyone, and then you know they didn't um, stringently like reduce that enough every year. There are a bunch of permits floating around that were very cheap and you could, you know, kind of buy those and claim those as an offset. So it's kind of problematic when it's really cheap and not actually leading to emissions reductions. Yeah. And it's also, I think I would add to that. Um, it's also problematic from a like kind of game theory and like human psychology standpoint, it's an incentive problem. So instead of finding people who emit, which is like the problem, the problem is emissions, right? Instead of finding people or corporations who are emitting, we are paying people not to emit. So what you get from that, those kinds of incentives are like manipulation um, in the carbon markets that we were talking about. So um, there, I mean, what, what Kelly already talked about, but what you could do if you're a, someone who's working a rational actor in this carbon market, you could, uh, you know that some regulations coming in the next two years, you would ramp, ratchet up the amount of pollution that you're doing right now so that, so that the, the country or like whatever, you know, regulations are going to pay you incentivize you to to ratchet that down so you get like preserve perverse incentives there that um that also are just like 
this is why we need to do a carbon tax, or, or as Kelly calls it, a carbon tax, as I like to call it, a carbon price, because I really want to avoid the term tax as much as I can. But this is why a carbon price is, like, so uh, crucial. Yeah, and I mean, we're getting a little bit off topic here, but this is also a big issue with water rights. It's kind of like use it or lose it. So it's like if you don't use all the water that you're allocated, then you will lose your rights to use that water. So, like, sometimes people will be like, oh, I don't want to use my right to lose this water lose my right to use this water. Sorry. Say that three times fast. So they will like just withdraw the water and not even like do anything with it, just waste it. Even though that's kind of the opposite of what you want them to do. And so I think with, when actually what you want to do is like for everyone to be like reducing their water usage. And similarly, we want everyone to be reducing their emissions because you can't, you know, like, if we stayed on the business-as-usual trajectory, we would be, like, doubling emissions in another 10 to 15 years, and we can't have that. We need to, like, have our emissions in that time. And so if we're just counting all the off, it's like, oh, you know, we actually, we are, let's say we're at, like, 100% right now. The difference between 200% and 100% is another 100%. So if you get all those offs that we're technically at net zero, which we're literally not. So anyway, we cannot offset our emissions our way to net zero answered your question and with that we will be transitioning to the the segment of the show that is being called by the right wing just um you know is build the build back better plan in disguise that's right it's a green new spiel (laughs) kelly i want you to start us off yeah um so steve kind of spoiled this one unintentionally um but um i was reading a couple articles in a canary media about um, cleaning up industry. So there's one about steel makers um, cleaning up their industry by trying to use green hydrogen. It's really interesting, um, particularly because the reason that some steel makers are doing it is because the auto companies are like, we're going to use green steel. And then the suppliers are like, okay, now we have a guaranteed market. So we can, even if it's slightly more expensive, the car companies will buy it because they will be able to use that for their marketing. So that's a really interesting way of how companies can use their supply chains and uh, power over their scope three emissions to drive change throughout the economy. Tied it back into the episode. Um, and another uh, good one um, was it's about a California based startup called Rondo, which wants to decarbonize cement production, basically anything that uses high temperature industrial heat with excess renewable energy. So they're basically using electric resistance, which is like if you have like a space heater in your room that plugs into an outlet, that's like the same technology that it uses. It's just like running heat through a wire, running electricity through some kind of resistor to generate heat. And you can do that and actually get to pretty high temperatures. Um, So they're trying to use that for industrial process heat. So that's really interesting. And we'll keep an eye on it. Wow, thanks, Kelly. I feel like uh, you always given us two green new spiels here, which I'm here for it. I'm also like, this is probably like Evan's green new spiel that you're like, bringing up and and i guess he never gave green new spiels did he so <laughs> no g- ghost of evan <laughs> it's like uh you're like going above and beyond on the assignment it's classic kelly <laughs> um oh overachiever <laughs> <laughs> well i'm i'm gonna show up and meet the assignment as as designated i'm gonna show up with just uh, one green new spiel and that green new spiel is that there is a group out there called activate um, and they are um, they're a fellowship agency, really, and they, they are partnering with climate leaders, um, including Stripe and Carbon 180, to launch the Carbon Dioxide Removal Imperative. This is a fellowship to support the creation of tech technological innovations um, in the ca- carbon capture and sequestration space. 
Again, we're teasing that. We're going to come up with that episode, I swear. I swear. So fund um, – the, the, uh, this fellowship is to fund and support Activate Fellows through a eighty to $110,000 stipend a year and plus health insurance and travel allowance for two years. And Stripe, in partnership, is going to be um, purchasing carbon removal from these startups that are in this fellowship through $500,000 procurement contracts. Um, so I think it's super interesting. I'm like really excited to see this. Like, um, it's kind of like an incubator of sorts, or you know, they're supporting some of these entrepreneurs to like really come up with these these uh, solutions. It also kind of echoes. Um, I don't know if the listeners have heard, but um, Elon Musk also had like a very similar competition that he po- that he like uh, marketed a while back, where he's like trying to find the the best carbon capture or negative emission technologies out there. It doesn't have to be carbon capture specifically, but negative emissions. So I love to see like a ton ton of like smart capital and like um, competition kind of flood this space. Like we're su- we're such early days of the carbon offset industry. So um, we're really going to need some some really, you know, badass technological innovations and I'm hoping that this will create that. Um, the fellows in this fellowship, um, they can remain where they are if they have a lab already or they can choose to relocate to Lawrence Berkeley National Labs cycl- Cyclotron Road or MIT's uh, Lincoln Laboratory. So if you're interested in any of that, check them out at activate.org slash fellowship. And with that segment, we wrap up us talking, and we wrap up the show. Thank you so much for listening to us. Kelly, you got any last words to, to, our, to our audience? My last words are, follow us on uh, every form of social media. We're on... Um, Twitter at GenRenewPod. We're on Facebook. Um, our page is The Renewable Generation. Like and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you like us, why don't you leave us a rating and review? If you don't like us, don't leave us rating and review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leave that, get that stuff out of here. <laughs> um, and um, Instagram. I'm at Kelly M. Jang, and you are? I'm climate underscore Steve. And if you like this and you think your friends or colleagues would like it, Share it with them. I think word of mouth is the best way that podcasts get known. Or apparently, my coworker told me she got recommended our podcast on Spotify like a few months ago, but she didn't know who we were. And now that uh, we're sponsored by Bright Power, she listened to us and she she likes us. So thanks, Amanda. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> Shout out to Amanda. Also, want to give you give you all some teasers. We got some really good episodes coming along the way. So we have a couple already queued up that we are planning right now. We've been teasing this carbon capture and storage episode for like three seasons now. It's coming, I swear. Um, and we got some really cool interviews uh, lined up with some experts in the field. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Keep an ear to the ground, and have a great rest of your week. Mm-hmm.